Today we've got my friend David Barton with us. And David, welcome back to the Gospel Truth. Good to be back, Andrew. Thanks for having me, bro. We had you on, I don't even know, but it was at least four, maybe five years ago. And we produced two weeks worth of programs and they were just spectacular. And I wanted to have uh, David come back and share with you. You know, this is entering into our Thanksgiving season. And uh, I tell you, there's just so much distorted history that we hear, especially around this time. And they're taking Thanksgiving and then turning it more into a like a harvest festival mm -hmm. or something and missing all of the godly uh, background to it. And I thought this is just a great time to have David come. Now, David, I don't know all of your credentials. You may have to correct me or give your own resume, but I know that you used to be a uh, teacher in yes, the school system, a history mm -hmm. teacher. Actually, a math and science teacher. Oh, excuse me. I was a math and science teacher and a principal of a school and coached basketball and other stuff, too. But so. anyway, you've got an interest in history, mm -hmm. and that's what you've dedicated yourself to for how many years now? We started about 25 years ago collecting original documents. And so now we have a collection of about 100,000 documents from wow. before 1812. So handwritten stuff of George Washington and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and all those guys. Got tons of it. And in my opinion, I don't know if other, everybody else agrees with this, but I would consider you to be one of the premier historians on, on early American history, especially the godly background to our history. And I think many people would recognize you as a... Well, we, it's interesting. I've been appointed in a lot of states by state boards of education or governors or whatever to do the social studies standards in those states. And so we've done that with a lot of states and then a lot of the public school textbook publishers we help them in writing the textbook. So there's somebody that thinks we know a little yeah. bit about history anyway. And, of course, there's a lot of people that don't like what you've got Absolutely. to say because we have basically rewritten that American history. Mm -hmm. And it is. I mean, the very first time that I had you on our program, I considered myself to be brought up in a Christian home. I was brought up in Texas where we prayed in public school. Mm -hmm. And my teachers were people that I went to church with. And so I felt like I had a pretty good upbringing. And yet the things you were saying were just astounding me. And I've gone back and done a lot of studying since then. And I found out that even with my conservative upbringing and a basically a godly upbringing, mm -hmm. I still drank a lot of the Kool-Aid that is being put forth today. You know, one of the problems, well, like with me, people don't like what we bring forth because one of the things that we have found over the years is there's so much biblical and godly and religious heritage. Yes. And for secular folks, they call me a revisionist yeah. because they learn secular history and put God back in. They think, but, but I've always likened that kind of what, what happened with Paul when in Acts, they said, he that turned the world upside down has come here. And it wasn't that Paul turned the world upside down. It had just been upside down so That's long right. that when he turned it right side up, That's they right. thought it was upside down. And in our case, what, what really goofs these guys up, they, they call me a revisionist is, I keep pulling out the original documents. Here's the handwritten document of the guy who said it. Really? Is this revisionism? And so going back to the original documents is the safest way to be accurate yeah. on history, but it drives people crazy because it's different from what they were taught. And it's, it's kind of a disappointing thing, but we do a lot of internships at our, our place. A lot of people come in. We have interns. And I have found this year for the first time, and I knew it was going on, but we have a lot of interns that came in out of conservative Christian colleges, and they're now telling me that their history teacher says, anybody who says to you that God was involved in history doesn't know what they're talking about. And that's at Christian colleges. 
And if you're saying that, you've got to deny the Bible because this teaches us that God's involved in history. And so now we've got Christian colleges telling our kids, no, God doesn't get involved in history. Man, that talk about deism. Now, there, there's Christian professors that are saying yeah. if God doesn't get involved, they're the deists, not the founding fathers. And so if Christian colleges and universities are saying this, what is happening in our secular colleges? Yeah, what's happening in secular colleges is a lot rougher. Um, there is a famous book out there, New York Times bestseller. It's in nearly every public school in America. And just the name of the book is a problem. And it's, it's called Don't Know Much About History. Now, <laughs> when you have to have a book in your public school that says you don't know much about history, that says how bad they're doing on yeah. teaching history. But it, it's, it's a little easy book to go through, and you can go through and get all these highlights out of history. So he pulls out the, the heavy things in history that everybody should know about. And as you get into things like the American Revolution, it has, and, and there's a lot of white space in the book. You know, it's easy to read because it's not filled up with the letters, a lot of white space. And it has in there about Patrick Henry. It's called, Say You Want a Revolution. And so they have Patrick Henry, the famous speech he gave. Mm -hmm. They take two sentences out of it and, and put in there, you know, give me liberty, give me death. But right between the two sentences, they put a three-dot ellipse in there. And an ellipse means they took something out. And you go, well, what'd they take out? Well, when you look at the speech, that's where he mentioned God. And so his mention of God is taken completely yeah. out. And it's not like, and it was only four words. that he, meant. he said, forbid it, almighty God. And then he goes into, after that, a lot of scriptures, but they cut all that out. And it wasn't they didn't have space because there's white paper everywhere. Well, that's revisionism. That's history. revisionism. You aren't the revisionist. That, no. You're going back to the original documents. I'll pull out the original documents and say, here's what he actually said. You know, and he, he quoted scriptures. I think in that, uh, there, there's a section of that speech, about 10 sentences, he quotes over a dozen scriptures in, in 10 sentences. And that's, that's Patrick Henry. We have another section of that book, Don't Know Much About History, that talks about the Mayflower Compact, which is Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so these guys, the pilgrims, come to America. They're sitting out in the harbor before they get off the ship. They do the Mayflower Compact. And it has an ellipse right in the middle of it, too. And you go, what, what's missing? And the, the ellipse is where it says, We, whose names are underwritten, having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith, a voyage to... And they took out all the Christian stuff, yeah. all the God stuff. And it's just an ellipse there. And so that's revisionism. I mean, that's hardcore revisionism, not going back to what they actually said. And, and by the way, we'll get to this later, but this is the first ever printing of the Mayflower Compact that happened in America. Now, they that's did the it, original. That's the original. This is the first printing. So I can open up here and show you what they said, and it's not what the public school textbooks say, but this is the original first printing. Now, it's right. not the handwritten document, but this is yep. the printing of it. So uh, right before we get into all of this, let me just say to those of you watching that I know we're going to be countering a lot of things that you've been taught and that you've held sacred for decades. And because it's different, you're going to sit there and say, man, this is extreme and stuff. But just like David started sharing, we're going to go back to the original documents. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how you can argue with this. And I encourage you to keep an open mind yeah. and an open heart. Because I really do believe, and again, I say I came from a very conservative background, and I found out that I wasn't told the whole truth. Not necessarily taught against it the way that some people do, but I wasn't, you know, I just was exposed to a watered-down uh, historical view of how America was founded. And many of you are going to be challenged, and I encourage you to just keep your heart open. I really believe that this is something that could change your life. Mm -hmm. Now, David, right before we get into this, I just want you to give a little bit of background about your ministry. Uh, wall builders, tell them about how they could get hold of your stuff. And 
tell us what you do. What do you spend your time doing? Wall Builders is the name we take from the Bible book of Nehemiah. And we love the book of Nehemiah because it's the largest grassroots effort in the Bible. Uh, when they got the situation of having to rebuild their country and get the honor back and get God back in the center of it, and they surveyed the ruins, they all said, this can't be done. This problem's too big. And Nehemiah says, no, we can get this done if everybody will just do their little part. And what I love about Nehemiah is there was no great leader that did a lot of repair. The, the priests rebuilt their own home. The men of Tekoa built a section of the wall. But when everybody did something, it got all done. And so what they thought was an impossible task to rebuild our nation really wasn't. I think that's kind of where we are that's in America great. today. We look at thing. what's going on in Congress and say, you know, I can't change the Supreme Court decision on marriage. And I can't change what Congress does. And I can't change the treaty of the Senate ratified. You don't have to. You just work in your community, you work on your city council or your school board, or you work on, if everybody will take care of their community, we'll get the whole nation fixed. And so that's, that's why we use wall builders. It's a great call to action. It says, you're not responsible for everybody else, you're responsible for what you do. And when everybody does that, we're in good shape. So we start there, but we're also into what I would call historical reclamation. And you'll, you'll find that scripturally, any time that God moves his people into a revival type setting, whether it's Asa or Jehoshaphat or even Josiah, it's built around history. They rediscover who they were. Mm -hmm. And so with Josiah, they were rebuilding the temple. They're getting God back in the center of the country, and they found that scroll, and they brought that scroll out. And they said, you mean we used to be like this? And reading that old scroll led to a national revival. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a scroll that literally saved Esther and Mordecai when the king had insomnia. He couldn't go to sleep. He said, bring me something to read. They brought him the history of his own kingdom. And in reading the history, he says, hey, there's a guy here named Mordecai, saved my life. I never did anything for him. And he read that just before Haman was going to hang Mordecai, and it saved Mordecai. And so all throughout the Bible, rediscovering history changes the course of history. And so with that 100,000 documents we have, what we try to do is bring that out and make it accessible for people to see. We post them on our website for people to look at. Uh, original Thanksgiving proclamations going back 200 years, 300 your years. Website, uh, Wallbuilders.com. They should have it on the screen. It'll be on the screen. Talking, and mm -hmm. we encourage people to go there because I've been there and I tell you, you got a wealth of information. How much stuff do you have? <laughs> We've got a lot. You know, it, it's kind of interesting, Probably Andrew. It's hard to qualify. It, it's hard to qualify, and so much of it, and I, I know, I believe the scripture. I, 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 I'm a firm believer of the Christian doctrine that God's word is inspired, inerrant, and infallible. Mm -hmm. It is accurate. We know that from 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. But I still get surprised because there's things that I just didn't think about. And so when Ecclesiastes 1, 9 says there is nothing new under the sun, I, I know that, but I'm still surprised when I look at George Washington dealing with the issue of homosexuals in the military back in March of 1778. Or, or when I look at, at Thomas Jefferson and James Wilson and others dealing with abortion issues back in the 1770s, 80s, and 90s, I'm going... I, you guys dealt with that? I don't know why I'm surprised. There's nothing new in the Well, sun. there's people that are surprised that the Word has things to say Absolutely. about these things. And they look at this as a historical document that is totally out of touch with That's us right. today. And we've got to move on. And then the same thing has happened with American history. They yeah. look at those things as, that doesn't apply to us today. We've got to be progressive and change all of these things. You know, one, one of the things, dealing that, that mindset that says we can't learn from history, we have to move on. One of the, the things that I found really funny is, and I use funny in, in quotes, mm -hmm. I've been involved in a lot of court cases, seven cases the U.S. Supreme Court and a bunch of other court cases. 
And back 15, 17, 18 years ago, one of the cases, one of the issues we were involved with was displaying the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments in courtrooms. Now, it used to be that it was easier to find the Ten Commandments in a courtroom than it was the church. I mean, hands down, mm -hmm. I think inside the U.S. Supreme Court, I counted there's over 50 depictions of the, US, uh, of the Ten Commandments in the U.S. Supreme Court. But we started having these, these suits brought where it says, oh, you can't have the Ten Commandments in the court. And the judge would say, yeah, that's right. That's religious stuff. You can't have it in the courts. And what the judge would say is, you know, if, if you'd make it part of a historical collage, we might allow it. If you'd put the Code of Justinian with it, and if you'd have the Code of Hammurabi with it, and if you'd have some other things. But that's revisionist. That's revisionist. That's not the way it is. But it also hard. proves to me the judges didn't have a clue what they were talking about. They, they thought that by, by having the Code of Justinian and Hammurabi, it would dilute that and, and make it... The Code of Justinian says blatantly, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we enact the following law. And you go, whoa, you, you have trouble with the Ten Commandments? And, and <laughs> they were just told that we needed to loot it. But what was really funny is they want to show the influence of the Code of Hammurabi on American law. That's what they kept telling us. Well, Code of Hammurabi, it's 300 years older than the Ten Commandments, granted, but it wasn't discovered until 1904. And so it didn't have a whit of influence on American law. And I see people would just conveniently leave that point they out. They leave that out. And they would leave people with the impression that 300 years before the Ten Commandments was given, this thing was a dominant force in, in our country. But you know why it stayed buried? It was useless. Because when you read, I think it's 271, 281 laws, whatever it is, and you look at the laws, and out of 208, and say out of the Ten Commandments, you still got ten laws that work today. Don't steal and don't kill, don't purchase. We still use that. Out of the Code of Hammurabi, some of the really funny kind of laws, one says, if a man accuses another, uh, another man of adultery, then you throw that man in the river. If he drowns, he was guilty of adultery. If he swims back to shore, he wasn't guilty of We would never use that. That's not exactly in the same class. That's as not the same class. And so it, it was so, it, if this man defrauds you, go ask for two and a half of his cows. And after you get, and, and stuff we would never do today. And so, yeah. but the Bible and the Constitution are both cool in that they only deal with the principles. They don't get, deal with specifics. They don't tell you to do this with the internet or do this with horses or they say, here are the principles. And that's what makes the Bible so cool yeah. is man doesn't change across time. We have the same problems we had 200 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 5,500 years ago with Adam and Eve. And that's why it still works. And so people who say, oh, we've moved past the Constitution, we've moved past the Bible, it's old stuff. No, it deals with human nature, and that's what makes it principle-driven awesome. rather than specifics. So you mentioned that you've argued cases in front of the Supreme well, Court. Well, I don't argue cases. I'm with the guys who do we're it. We're part of the team. And okay. so what we'll do is put together the arguments and, so and some testified. of the briefs. Don't test at the well, Supreme do you Court. Do you don't testify at the Supreme Court. You offer written um, because as you come to a case at the Supreme Court, only usually only one guy speaks. It's about thirty minutes for each side. But what the court has done is they've read all the arguments up there. So we help write the arguments that the justices read, and then the justices talk to the chief counsel and say, "Now you've said here," and, and they ask him stuff. So what we'll do is we help prepare the written documents that the justices read to ask the questions on, on the, on the general counsel. Okay, so have you gotten involved in any of the curriculum in our schools? I've, very much. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. I'd heard some about that. So you were involved in what states? Um, states that we've been involved with has been California, uh, Texas, Oklahoma, 
Uh, we've been involved with Kentucky, with Alabama, with Georgia, all these different states. And, and it really is kind of funny because I know that what I'm showing people is not what they've been taught. And so, for example, when I was appointed in California, there were three of us appointed to, to help write the standards. And what they did was all the teachers and others wrote the standards, and they gave it to three of us, and we're supposed to review it and make corrections and send it back. And so when I got the, the set of standards, maybe an inch thick, I went through it, and I just flat tore it up. And, and I sent back, I don't know, 40, 50 pages, single-spaced, saying this is wrong. And, and I knew that they wouldn't know that, so I also included attachments of original documents awesome. and facts to show them. And I so tore up their standards that when I sent it back, I thought, I'll never hear from them again. You know, that, that there's no way. Mm -hmm. And about six weeks later, I got a call from the head of the California Department of Education. And she called and she said, Barton, we got the stuff you sent, your review. She said, I got to tell you, we don't like you. We don't like what you stand for. We don't like anything about you. But we went back and checked all those documents you sent. It turns out you're right, and we're going to include that in the standards. Wow. So about 95% of what I pointed out to them, they included simply because they didn't know I'm, it, and I'm they checked shocked. the documents. Now, I'm not shocked about the South that they might endorse something like that, but California, now, that I, is awesome. I'll tell you what the irony that was. It, they actually would have come up with probably what were the best standards in the nation, but that was at the time that California went bankrupt, the Governor Gray Davis and everything. And so they'd never printed textbooks out of those standards. We got the standards together, they went bankrupt, they couldn't do textbooks. And so all the textbook uh, bases shifted to Texas because Texas and California, those two states have 26% of the nation's public school students. So when a textbook publisher puts $20 million into writing a textbook series, those are the only two states that are going to guarantee that they get their money back. So even though you might live in Kansas or Wisconsin or Nebraska, your textbooks are written by Texas or California standards generally most of the time. So did you have any input into the Texas? Texas, the last two series of Texas textbooks, we've, uh, I've been one of the reviewers on that. We had six reviewers this time in Texas. And so of those six, I was one of the ones who got to shape and craft the, the final standards as they came out of Texas. And we, we included a lot of stuff. And the same reason we're able to show the stuff historically that it actually happened. So as we deal with Thanksgiving, you know, we're, we're 10 days off from Thanksgiving. Whole different view of Thanksgiving yeah. now than, than what they've had in recent years. Praise God. Uh, we go back and, and, you know, it's interesting. We now, in, in the history books, cover the first and the second Great Awakenings, which wasn't covered. But any good historian will tell you that America does oh, not yeah. exist if we had, didn't yeah. have the Great Awakenings. We also cover the main preachers in them. So people may know about George Whitfield, but they probably haven't heard of Samuel Davies or Gilbert Tennant or Jonathan Edwards or others. They're now covered. Mm -hmm. Then we cover uh, all the ministers in the founding era because John Adams, in 1818, a young historian asked John Adams, and, and Adams, that's 42 years after the Revolution, John Adams, old man, Hezekiah Niles doing a history book on the history of the Revolution, and he asked old man Adams, he said, you were there. I mean, we weren't. Our generation didn't see it. Who's responsible for, for what we enjoy today? And John Adams started listing preachers. He didn't list John Hancock and, and those guys. Mm -hmm. Well, he, he got to them, but he said, well, you got Reverend Dr. Samuel Cooper. You got the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Mayhew, and he's given these preachers. We've never heard of these preachers, but they're back in the history books now, so they will be covered. David, the reason I was wanting to have you on for many reasons, but um, this is around the Thanksgiving time. Mm -hmm. We are going to be hearing a lot about Thanksgiving. And to many people, Thanksgiving is nothing more than just a meal and a harvest festival mm -hmm. and a football game. 
But actually, uh, Thanksgiving is remembering back about the pilgrims and how this nation actually was started, the people that came over here. And uh, I consider you to be an authority on this, and so I'd like you to just start sharing with our audience mm-hmm. the true history and and like what the pilgrims were all about. And, yeah. and this time of year, how we have missed out on so much of the godly things that actually caused this nation to be. Yeah, and that's a great place to start is who were the pilgrims because we do track our Thanksgiving back to them. Now, if you're in schools in the last three to four years, you don't know that the pilgrims even believed in God. Uh, one, of the th- one of the unfortunate things, this is in the past several years, the uh, the Thanksgiving message out of the White House to no longer even mentions God. When we give thanks, God's not part of that. Well, part of that's because of who's in the White House. That's that's a real problem. You check Thanksgiving <laughs> proclamations of this that's president true. with the previous ones, and it's not the same. We also have, I have not checked this year on Wikipedia, but Wikipedia last year didn't even mention God as part of Thanksgiving. And how you can go through the history of Thanksgiving and fail to mention God. Now, Granted, in the last five to seven years, they've really tried to make this bad. Uh, there were a number of articles that came out last year, national newspapers, editorials, that Thanksgiving's not a day we should celebrate. This is a terrible day in American history. This is a day of oppression, a day of tyranny, uh, and which means they don't know anything about the history at, at all. Uh, they've now been I told bad things. That. Why would they even say something? Oh, like because th- this is when the pilgrims oppressed the Indians. This is when the oppression oh. of all the Indians began. This is when they stole the land from the Indians. And, and, and now that is intellectually dishonest. Well, to say something like that because that's not true. It's not true, but but what happens is they say that to kids in elementary school in the fifth grade, and those kids don't know any other other thing than what they're told. And the parents don't know the kids are being told that. And so what's happened, this has been going in school for a while, now they're putting it in papers. And so if you have gone through, a, you made a point yesterday that I think is worth returning to for a bit because you said you grew up in Texas and you grew up in a conservative system and you didn't hear all the anti stuff. You just didn't hear all the pro mm-hmm. stuff, and that's that's the way revisionism works. And it starts back. If you had gone to school in America prior to World War II, you would have learned. And and by the way, if you want to have a fun thing to do, there's there's what's called the American Presidency Project. It's done. Um, this this website lists all the speeches of all the presidents. Go through and just search Bible under the presidents. And you'll find that prior to World War II, presidents are the one who talked more about the Bible in America than preachers ever did. Now, what happened about World War II, we went silent. And we went from the 50s through about the 70s with nobody talking much about it. Ronald Reagan came along and tried to revive it. But since the 80s, it's just kind of, we don't talk about it. And so, since it's been silent for 30 to 40 years, now you can come in with all the bad stuff. And the way I liken this to, we were talking yesterday that that I've helped do history standards in a lot of states, appointed by their state boards of education. If I look in a history textbook, and the history textbook says that in 1968, Abraham Lincoln dropped a nuclear weapon on Korea to end World War I, I'll say, you're crazy. We all know that's not true. But if I look in that textbook and it never even mentions Abraham Lincoln at all, I don't notice that. See, I, I see, most of us see things that are stupid. We don't see what's not there. And so you take Abraham Lincoln out for 20 or 30 years, and then you come back and you do what California has done now. They said, Abraham Lincoln was a homosexual. He's one of our great homosexual histories. And wait a minute, 
That's not accurate. Yeah, but if you haven't talked about it for 20 years, when you reintroduce him, you've got 20 to 30 years of people who don't know anything about Abraham Lincoln. And, and so that's one of the problems we have, and that's where we are with the pilgrims. We haven't taught about the pilgrims and their love for God and their love for the scriptures. And so now we come along and editorial say, oh, they hated the Indians. They, they stole the land. And, and, and let me just kind of, we'll get to this later, but let me just kind of set the record on that real mm -hmm. quick. The pilgrims got here with a charter from the king. The charter from the king, like all the charters from the king, he thinks he owns all of America. So he, these folks get here and they say, no, we've read the Bible. And their pastor, John Robinson, when he sent them out of England, said, do not do in America what we've been doing in Europe. This is darkness. You won't light over there. And so these guys got there and they looked for the Indians and said, can we purchase some of your land? Got a charter, we don't care about that. Can we purchase some of your land? You set the price, you set the title. Date. The longest treaty in American history between Native Americans and Anglos was with the Pilgrims and the Indians. They had great relations. In that first winter, when the Pilgrims, half of them died that winter, they didn't know how to live in the new land. They were out foraging for food, acorns, anything they could get. They found a buried cast iron pot full of kernels of corn. Don't know how, how it got there. Don't know where it came from. But it was kernels of corn. And they, that carried them through that winter. Kept them from dying. Next spring came along. They went out and searched the Indians and said, We found somebody's kettle of corn. We ate the corn out of it. We need to pay somebody for that corn because that wasn't ours. And we don't mean to be stealing. And so whoever owned that kettle of corn, we want to find out and pay. That was their dedication to respecting private property rights and respecting the rights of the Indians. And that is because the Bible teaches that. Bible teaches private property. Uh, there's 613 civil laws in the Bible, and the Ten Commandments, God's top ten laws. And of the top ten, two of them deal with protecting private property. Don't mm -hmm. steal somebody's property. Don't want somebody's property. So you'll find that the Christian colonists who came to America, particularly those that were ministers or reversed in God's Word, they always bought land from the Indians. When Rhode Island was formed, the Reverend Roger Williams would not take it until he had a title deed from the Indians to the land that he purchased at their price. Uh, Connecticut, the Reverend Thomas Hooker, wouldn't let people settle there until he had a title deed from the Indians, land set by them. In the case of William Penn, William Penn was a soldier, but his father was an admiral in the British Navy under Charles II. And William Penn's father loaned Charles II a lot of money to prosecute a war. Well, Charles II gets done, they're bankrupt, he can't pay the debt back, he says, I own all the New World. I'll just give you a bunch of land in the New World. I'll call it Pennsylvania. I'll name it after you. So the land of Pennsylvania was the king saying, it's my land. I'm giving it to, to Admiral Byrd here. Well, when Admiral, Admiral, not Byrd, Admiral Penn, when Admiral William Penn died, then the young William Penn gets the land. He comes to America. He's got a title deed. The king gave him all this land. He gets here and he said, king doesn't know what he's talking about. I know the land belongs to the Indians. So he said, all right, who owns the land? This tribe said, we do. Another tribe said, uh-uh, we do. Well, that's because this tribe took it from that tribe who took it from that tribe who took it. And so what William Penn did was he bought the land from multiple tribes to have a clear title deed to it. He wouldn't even take the charter he now was given. I just hear people all over the world saying this can't be true that's right. because they've heard so much different. But See, you what, have... We've got the documents. I, I have some Indian treaties by the, by the colonists. I have the actual treaties signed where the, the Indians said, yes, we'll give you this land, and that's where they would form towns. They would not form towns until they had that Now, that this deed. is not to say that the Americans always treated the Indians See, right. See, that's there the difference. There was tremendous abuse There's later tremendous on, abuse. it was founded 
on godly principles. And you will find that the secular colonists who came here said, we've got a charter from the king. You Indians, get off the land. The biblical people who came here said, no, no, no. King doesn't own this land. You guys own and possess the land. Can we buy some from you? And that's why you'll find that in the Christian areas, they had great relations with the Indians because they respected that private property. The more greedy guys, the secular guys who didn't have a biblical foundation came and took the land. And then what happened was, what, where the real egregious stuff happens is as you start the westward march across America. You get off the 13 colonies, you start marching west. Missionaries don't go fast enough to keep up with all those explorers. And so you get all these secular explorers and secular forces going after gold and other stuff ahead of the missionaries. And that's where they take the land and they seize the land and they kill whoever's owning the land. So instead of the revisionists saying that it's all of these pilgrims and all of these Christians who started all of these things wrong and we're correcting it, it was actually the non-Christian secularists that caused all of these problems. problems. It was founded with a godly heritage. Let let me give you another good example. We'll, We'll make a distinction later, but the pilgrims are a part of a larger group called the Puritans. And the pilgrims are a sect or a branch of the Puritans. Mm -hmm. And in every American history textbook I've seen in the last 25 years, we talk about how the Puritans are the ones who conducted the witch trials. And the Puritans, those intolerant Christians, put to death. Okay, the witch trials happened in Massachusetts Mm -hmm. in 1691-92. 27 people were put to death in those witch trials. That's 27 people shouldn't have been put to death. But that's not the story. The story is why did the witch trials end? The witch trials ended because three Christian leaders, John Wise, uh, Increase Mather, Thomas Brattle, went to Governor Samuel Sewell and said, Sewell, here's the Bible. And by the way, this is one of the Pilgrim's Bibles. This is an original Pilgrim's Bible right here. They said, Sewell, you're doing these trials. The Bible says that you cannot put anyone to death unless there's been two eyewitnesses to the cross. You don't have any eyewitnesses. Bible also says you can't use hearsay testimony. You're using hearsay testimony. Jesus tells us in John 8 that you get to confront your accusers. You're not allowing these people to confront their accusers. They're saying, you're doing the judicial process, the whole, it's all wrong. Samuel Sewell looked at that and said, you're right. He went to Judge William Phipps. Excuse me, Sewell was a judge. It started with William Phipps, the governor. The, the, the three ministers went to the governor said, Phipps, this is wrong. Phipps went to the judge and said, this is wrong. Judge Samuel Sewell stood up in church and said, I have sinned. I did not follow God's word. Innocent people have been put to death. He repented in front of the congregation. Governor Phipps then issued a colony-wide day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer, seeking to avert God's judgment from coming on the colony because they did not follow God's word. That's what stopped the the witch trials in Massachusetts. Now, here's the fun part. They had witch trials going in Europe at the same time. 500,000 were put to death in the European witch trials. We never hear about that in the textbooks. We'll hear about the 27 in America, not the 500,000 in Europe. And we don't hear why it was only 27 in America, had that it was the Word of God and Christian ministers who went to the civil authorities and said, you're not doing it biblical. You see, they were just copying what Europe was doing. Again, this is people who take something, and there's, there's bad things that have happened. I don't you think you or, or I or anybody is denying that there Those are Those 27 Christian, deaths were bad. There are Christians that today do weird stuff that you don't bet. accurately reflect Christianity. You bet. So they go take an isolated event, and they refuse to say that it was true Christianity that stopped this That's abuse. Right. That's right. And kept it to only 27 versus 500. That's right. What did you say in Europe? 500,000. 500,000 in Europe killed in their witch trials 
And so anyway, if you were to put this in its proper context and give all of this information, it totally changes. It does. The totally impression. changes. And so in the uh, absence of this truth and in the ignorance that people have, it opens us up to all kinds of wrong conclusions. See, we haven't taught this kind of stuff. And so when an editorial comes along in the newspaper and says, we should not be celebrating Thanksgiving because this is the exploitation of the Indians. This is, this is terrible stuff brought to them. Sorry, that's just not what it is. That may be that way because you haven't studied it in the last 30 years. And so now you're putting bad stuff in. But, but you got to understand, this comes from people who don't like God anyway. Sure. And so every chance they, they get to make God, that's right. And, and you know, we, we know in the Scriptures, the Scriptures say that the Word of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of Christians. Mm. We make God look bad. And there are Christians among us who do that. But for every bad one you'll find, you'll find a hundred good ones that nobody talks about. And that's the way history often and is. And the only reason that these people are able to get by with these radical statements that are untrue is because of our ignorance. That's right. People don't know the truth. That's if, right. If the general population knew that what they were saying was wrong, it would so destroy They'd rise them. up against them. Yeah. They, and we're told in, in Hosea 4, 6, God's people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. It's because we don't know our own history. And because we don't, they lead us in directions that we shouldn't be going, but we don't know otherwise because we don't know who we are as a people. So the pilgrims, when they came over here, this was a religious group of people that came specifically for religious freedom, among other things. But, I mean, they were, it was a godly group of people. Well, it's interesting because they, they had a degree of religious freedom. What had happened was they were in England and they were being persecuted for their beliefs. Uh, there were laws in England that England had a state-established church. And so the state-established church, it could be the Anglican church or the Catholic church or whatever the king was, everybody's going to be what he is. So you do not have any kind of freedom of choice of your own religion. And so what they did was they passed civil laws, and those civil laws said specifically, you will, and in the case of the pilgrims, you will attend Anglican church services. Pilgrims said, we're not Anglicans. We're not mm -hmm. going to do Anglican church services. Every Sunday they did not go to an Anglican church. They were fined for what they did. They also had a belief that the king is not supposed to be establishing doctrine for the church. The, the, the church is supposed to establish doctrine, not the king. That's not, but I have, I have laws passed by the king back then in our collection where parliament is passing laws on who can and cannot take communion. That's not the business of civil government to tell you who can and can't take communion. Pilgrims objected to that. I have laws passed by parliament saying who can and cannot preach the gospel. Unless Parliament says you can, you can't. Pilgrims didn't agree with that. If God calls you to preach, that's not Parliament's business. So the Pilgrims objected to all this and find themselves getting thrown in prison, find their own pastor being killed by the, by the civil leaders. From there, they go to Holland. And they get into Holland, and they've got complete religious liberty in Holland. But they noticed in Holland they were losing their culture because their kids were growing up with a different culture from what they had as Englishmen. And they liked their English culture, they liked their traditions, they liked the Magna Carta, they liked the concept of the Bill of Rights, they liked written documents, different from Holland. So they said, look, we want to preserve our English culture, but we want our faith, we want the Bible. Only way we can do that is to go to the New World. We'll go to the New World. And so that's what they did. they were preaching separation of church and state. They preached the right way. The and, right. And, and that's something we can, we can cover, too, because you need to understand that separation of church and state is a biblical doctrine, but it's not the doctrine we have that's today. Right. Again, that's not revisionist. Close. Uh, it's revisionist. They, they've taken the right phrase, and they've turned it wrong. 
It's, but they just wanted the state to quit telling them who could take communion, who could preach the gospel that's right. and stuff, and they wanted the freedom to establish their own religion. In the laws. Bible, God sets it up where that you have Aaron over the temple and Moses over the civil affairs. And the temple guys don't tell the civil affairs guys what to do, and the civil affairs guys don't tell the temple affair guys what to do. And in England, you had Henry VIII or Queen Elizabeth or whoever that was the head of both the church and the state at the same mm -hmm. time. That was tried in Second Chronicles 26, and God struck it down at, I mean, sovereignly struck it down and said, no, 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 I will not have the same person over church and state. I will have two separate institutions. And the pilgrims believed that and taught that, and for objecting to what civil leaders are doing by being head of church and state, by, by holding up the Bible and saying, we want the Bible view on this, they got themselves killed. And that's why they went to Holland and eventually to America, because they want the Bible, they want to do it God's way. They want their, their traditional cu their culture, and the only way they can do that is come to America. And when they got here, one of the first things they did was enact separation of church and state, but not to keep God out of the civil arena, to keep the civil arena from That's telling right. the church what they could do. Which is totally reversed. Totally in reversed. the name of separation of church and state That's right. now, the church is coming in and forcing Christians to support... Or the state's coming in and forcing yeah. Christians. And... Um, support things that like uh, fund abortion and uh, you know there's I don't know if you, you're probably aware of this but I just got a thing that they are now saying that you can't be neutral on homosexuality you actually have to promote it yes and if you don't then you could be in trouble for that the justice department has has put a memo out in the justice department that says if you are silent on homosexuality we'll take that as you're against homosexuality and you'll be treated that way well, you're now telling me I can't believe what Romans chapter 1 right. tells me. I can't believe what 1 Corinthians 6 tells me. Now, we I need can't. a separation from that state. Yeah, that's right. But not where, that's exactly you know, right. you can't have your religious beliefs and stuff. We just need to get the government out of our affairs. That's exactly right, especially out of our religious affairs. It's not that you get government secular. There's, that's not God's plan is to have a secular government. Because we're told in Proverbs 29, 2, in the righteous rule, the people rejoice. Well, you would know this quote better than I do, but John Adams wrote something to the effect that democracy is totally unsuited for anybody but a moral people. Yeah. And that if America ever ceases to be moral, we'll destroy ourselves. Yeah, yeah John Adams had, had two things going. One is he hated democracy, which is why we're a Republican-formed government. Mm -hmm. That's Exodus 1821. Second thing he said was he talked to a group of military guys on October the 11th of 1798, and he said, look, appreciate you guys, you won the revolution, but you're not big enough to make people do what's right. He said, our constitution is made only for a moral and a religious people. It's wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Yeah. If you can't control yourself by the Ten Commandments of God, we can't pass enough civil laws to make you act right. And so that's why we never secularized government. We always promoted God's word of religion. That's why the Ten Commandments do hang in courthouses, not in church buildings, because God's word was the basis of what we do. So again, we've got a philosophy out there that government needs to be totally secular. And yet the founding fathers, that's not what they saw. They saw founding Christianity fathers. as the only thing that's to hold right. government in check. That's exactly right. And, it, and we'll get into this later, but in our founding birth certificate, they say that this is the declaration, the unanimous declaration of the 13 states in Congress assembled. The unanimous declaration, we believe there's a creator. We believe the creator gives us rights. We believe that government exists to protect the rights the creator gave us. That's not personal opinion. That's a government document. It's not secular. 
It says we believe there's a creator who gives us rights and government exists to protect what he gave us. And our freedom comes from God, not from the that's government. Right. The that's government that's is exactly not the right. Source. The only chance you have of limited government is to know that God gives you certain rights that government cannot touch. And so when the Christians allow the government to just become totally secular and stuff and adopt that, we're, we've signed our own death warrant. Right? We have. We have. Our, our rights are biblically given. Founding fathers recognize that, but they are politically protected. Yeah. And if we allow our politics to become so secular, we lose our biblical rights. It's our own fault. So talk some more about that. To understand, we really need to cover the history of Christianity. The, the Founding Fathers are very good about this. And separation of church and state, Founding Fathers like Thomas Jefferson are, are connected to that. And Jefferson's view of separation was the American view of separation, was the Pilgrim's view of separation. And significantly, uh, there, are, there are books out there by historians from previous generations and one of those books is by a guy named Clinton Roster. He's a, he's a professor at Cornell University, was. They now have an endowed chair of history at Cornell, the Clinton Roster Chair of History. But he had this award-winning book called Seed Time of the Republic. And it's like, where did America get these ideas that made us different from other countries? And he went through and identified the six greatest intellectual forces in shaping American thought. And four of the six were ministers of the gospel. And one of the earliest ministers of the gospel, one of the early ones, was a guy named John Wise. He's, he was a leader of the Puritans that got the witch trials stopped. He, he went and said, this is wrong. You're not following the Bible. Follow the Bible in court. And so John Wise, this is, his, his books were in Thomas Jefferson's library. Matter of fact, his books were so significant that in 1772, the Founding Fathers, the Sons of Liberty, reprinted his sermons, and they sent them all over America before the Declaration of Independence. And the Declaration of Independence is filled with several quotes directly out of John Wise's sermons. And so he's the guy that way back in the 1680s said, look, when you study all the scriptures, it's really clear that God made all men equal, that he endowed them with certain inalienable rights. Well, that's in the Declaration. Yeah. Well, that's out of a sermon. I've heard you quote before, you would know the exact number, that there's many, many references to sermons or mm -hmm. to quotes from preachers that were actually included in the Declaration and our and Constitution. Constitu yeah, you'll find that every single right set forth in the Declaration of Independence had been preached from the American pulpit prior to 1763. Declaration of Independence is nothing more than listening to what we've been hearing in now church for years. that just infuriate people who believe that this nation is supposed to be a totally secular nation. You know what will infuriate true. them even more? <laughs> is the Founding Fathers who wrote and signed the Declaration not only were sermons big, they say that the most significant single book for what they did was John Locke's Two Treatises of Government. It was written in 1690. And the Two Treatises of Government, I have one of those 1776 volumes from the John Locke's Two Treatises. And Richard Henry Lee, he's the guy in Congress who made the motion on June the 7th that we separate from Great Britain and become independent. So, or June 6th, June 6th, 7th. Anyway, Richard Henry Lee. He said we copied, the, he said we, quote, copied the declaration out of Locke's two treatises. We talked who just, was Locke? John Locke was a British philosopher, also considered a British theologian. John Locke did what was called the commonplace uh, scriptures. He did an early concordance on the Bible, wrote several books on Christianity. John Locke, British theologian and, and British philosopher, Interesting, and today all, all history professors call him a great deist, which is a strange thing that he would do so many works on the Bible being a deist. But nonetheless, that's what they call him today. So John Locke did this. This is a book that went all over America because back then 
1690, there was a guy who came out and he wrote a piece saying the Bible supports the divine right of kings. So when the king says jump, everybody say how high because that's God speaking through the king. When the king speaks, that's the voice of God. And John Locke said, that's not true. And so John Locke went through the Bible and showed forms of government that were, that, that's just not true out of the Bible. Well, the founding fathers used that book because they're now in a conflict against a king, King George III. And what will drive people crazy is if you had been in American government classes 40 years ago, you would have read John Locke's two treatises on government because the founding fathers said that's where they got their ideas. You don't read it today. I imagine most people have never heard the name. Of never John heard the name. But the reason you don't read it today, and it's not a long book. I've got, you know, it's 400 pages long, in stick. It cites the Bible over 1,500 times to show the proper operation of civil government. Mm -hmm. Now, most Christians go, wait, there's not that many verses in the Bible. Yeah, there are. There are more than that. But by the way, 1,500 dealing with civil government. Christians, I, I've, I've tried this before with Christians and groups of Christians. say, how many verses can you name in the Bible that deal with civil government? I've never had more than six named. Yeah, well, 1500. I, would, I would be struggling to come up with more than six. See, that's the way we've that's been trained. That, that's the way we've been trained in recent years. So founding fathers used this book to write the Declaration. So John Wise is important. John Wise, in his sermons, did what other Christians at that time did, and they broke 2,000 years, actually at that time, 1,700-year history of Christianity into three periods. They called period one the period of purity. That's from the time Jesus started Christianity until 391 A.D. And in 391 A.D., until that time, Christianity was purely voluntary. If you wanted to follow Christ, you made the choice. Nobody forced you to. If you didn't follow Christ, you didn't have a sword at your throat. It was complete, just like Jesus taught us it should be. We gave everybody a choice. 391 A.D., Emperor Theodosius, who was a Christian, said, Christianity is the, whole, the religion of the whole world. I'm the emperor of the whole world, and if you don't believe in Christianity, you will be killed. All other religions are illegal. So for the first time, the state took over the church and started decreeing who will be and who won't be Christians and what their doctrines were. Now, the problem with that is when you go back to the Old Testament, when God set up his nation, he said, Aaron, you're over the this temple stuff. Moses, you're over the, the, the civil stuff. In Second Chronicles 26, when King Uzziah, and King Uzziah is a great godly king. God mm -hmm. blessed him. King Uzziah said, I'm going into the... God has so blessed me, I'm going to go offer, offer Thanksgiving sacrifices to him. The priest met him at the door and said, no, you won't. That's the priestly job. That's not the king's job. He says, I am the king. Don't tell me what I can and can't do. He went to the, to the altar to offer sacrifices. God struck him at the altar, hit him with leprosy. That's kind of like God saying that there is a separation That's right. between the church and God says, look, here's how I set it up. And I told you, king, you're not the priest. Mm -hmm. and, but what happened was, after Emperor Theodosius 391 did this, you have folks like Otto II, emperor, who created his king's crown to sit atop the church mitre. And the church mitre is what the pope wears. Mm -hmm. So the king actually wore two hats at once. He wore the crown and he wore the mitre. That's a violation of separation church and state. But from 391 A.D. for the next 1,200 years, that's exactly what we did. For the, all that period of time... And notice, it was not the church that took over the state. It was the state that took over the church. The state came in and says, we'll tell you what your doctrines are. Henry VIII, the, the reason the Anglican church got started, Henry VIII wanted a divorce. Yep. And the, the church said, you Prior can't to that, do that. he had to just kill his wife. That, so exactly, exactly. He, he wants a divorce. A and, and, and they said, look, Jesus says in Matthew 19, 3 through 9, you cannot have a no-fall divorce. And you can't do this. And Henry says, no problem, I'll start my own church. So that's where the Anglican mm -hmm. church comes into being. He gave himself a divorce. 
and then he starts decreeing church doctrines again. I've got all these original laws passed by Parliament saying what you can't get. Now, that's what the Founding Fathers called the period of apostasy. And that, that 1,200 years is also called the Dark Ages. So that's religion two or... That's period two. Christianity, period two. that's period two in Christianity. Period one is a period of purity. Period two is a period of apostasy. Mm -hmm. And at that point in time, that's where the civil guy said, hey guys, this is God's holy word. You're a sinner. You can't touch his holy... You, you'll, you'll mess it up. So they put God's word above people. They would not allow you to read God's word. And they'd make sure it's in a language you couldn't read. And so illiteracy set in, because if you're not going to read, you can't read, the, that's the book worth reading, man. You can't read that, why read anything? And literally, that's what happens. So we have high illiteracy, and that really led to a problem. Because then, the civil leaders started saying, you know, everybody remember that it was the Jews who killed Jesus. If you want to make Jesus happy, go find a Jew and kill a Jew. So we slaughtered 12,000 Jews in the Rhine Valley back in 1015 or whenever it was. You find all this history of who did that? Uh, Christians. Christians went out. Christians went out and started finding Jews and killing Jews. We banned Jews from going into Jerusalem. We banned Jews from Israel. When you're saying Christians, you're talking about religious Christians. I'm, talk not I'm, true not, I'm talking about the, the state church. Yeah. The state church. The king had taken the, the civil leaders, whether they were kings, emperors, anyone else, took over the church, and those emperors are saying, "Here's the deal: we established church doctrine, and we're telling you that if you want to make Jesus happy, you kill a Jew." Mm. And so this is where you'll find. Whenever you want to find the atrocities, the Inquisition, the Crusades, anything else, you have to go to period two Christianity, which is the period when people did not have God's word and the state was running the church. But what happened, period three Christianity came along, and that's what the Founding Fathers called the period of Reformation. It starts with John Wycliffe, a Catholic priest, who said, people have got to read God's word. Well, he gets himself killed just for bringing God's word into English. You've got to have it. People can't read God's Word. And so you, whether it's Hose, Hose, John Hus or, or Wycliffe or, or all these reformers, there end up being about 25 different reformers in seven different nations over 250 years, mostly Catholics, who said we've got to get... And people today think the Reformation is a Catholic versus a Protestant thing. It is not. The Reformation is a let's get back to God's Word thing. And so what happens as the Reformation grows, you end up with this Bible right here. This is the Bible of the Reformation. This is called a Geneva Bible. This is what those who wanted to go back to the Bible use. And what makes this Bible significant, I'll just hold it up so you can see it. This is the book of Joshua. By the way, 1560 is the first edition of this Bible. This is, this is a pilgrim's Bible. This is brought to America by, by those books. This, one, uh, this particular Bible here is from 1590. Between 1560 and 1644, this went through 100 and, no, 1640, it went through 144 different reprints. So this was the popular Bible. Uh, this here, you can see on it, it is printed in London in 1590. Uh, the pages here, these are the pages of the Arthur Upton family. They have kids born in 1627 and 1629 and 1631. Wow. So this is, this is the Bible brought to America. But if I show you the book of Joshua here, what makes the Geneva Bible significant is all this little bitty writing up here, up and down every page. That's the commentaries of those 25 or so reformers. So Calvin and, and, and Huss and, and, and Jerome and Cramner and Luther, all these guys. And what they do here is they say, guys, we've been doing it wrong for 1,200 years. I know the culture says this, but the Word of God says... And so these commentaries here challenged them to live by the Bible in education, in government, in business, 
and relations with all, all tribes of Indians we talked about. This is where all that stuff came from. And so this is what they brought to America mm-hmm. because, see, the, the, the pilgrims, the, the pilgrims are, are part of, let, let me back up. Henry VIII has the Anglican Church, and the Anglican Church is corrupt. Mm-hmm. And he is killing people like crazy who are trying to follow God's word, but he disagrees with the way they interpret God's word, so he kills you. At that point, you have a group rise up. They're called the Puritans. They say, we've got to purify the church. This is wrong. The word of God says certain things. Let's purify the church. So they're Puritans. Well, there's a group of Puritans who say, the church is so corrupt, it can't, or the, the Anglican church is so corrupt, it can't be purified. We're just going to separate and start our own. They're known as the separatists. The separatists are the pilgrims. The guys who came to America said, it's too corrupt. The, the European church is too corrupt to fix. Let's just start it again and do it right. So when you look in the capital of the United States, there was a painting in there, painted by Weir back in the 1830s. It was posted in the 1840s. It's 14 feet high. It is 20 feet long. And it's the pilgrims kneeling in prayer coming to America. Their pastor, John Robinson, is there. And John Robinson, in his sermon to them as they left, said, We have been living in darkness in Europe, biblical darkness. He says, this contains light. When you get to America, you sit your colony up, you run your government, you run your church by this, not by what we've been doing wrong for 1,200 years. Don't do it period two Christianity, do it period three Christianity. So the pilgrims really were an attempt to try and start over and do start it over. right. And, and what happened was, as they were trying that in England, their pastor, Pastor Greenwood's their original pastor, he, Queen Elizabeth was queen at the time, and he says, there's only one head to the church, and that head is Jesus Christ. It is not Queen Elizabeth. For making that statement, she killed him. For oh, saying, really? for sa- the pilgrim's pastor... For saying that Jesus is the head of the church, not the queen is head of the church, they killed him. That's when the pilgrims went to Holland, because they believe that too. They believe that Jesus is the head of the church, not the king or the queen is head of the church. Well, actually, they went to pilgrim. One more thing happened. They killed the pastor. Then they passed a law that says anyone who criticizes the queen as head of the church will end up in dungeon without bail. You will spend the rest of your life in, in that vermin-infested dungeon. Mm. That's when the pilgrims left and went to Holland, and then they came to America. So they're the ones, the pilgrims and Puritans call for a separation church and state. What they call for is get the state away from telling us what our religion is. Now, it was never the church trying to tell the state. It was the state trying to tell the church. So separation church and state means let's go back to period one where we get to make the voluntary choices. Period two is coercion. That's the state. The state puts a penalty on you if you don't believe right. Period three is go back to voluntary. But primarily today, most people's understanding of separation of church and state is it like, for instance, in a school. You can't have any mention of God. You can't have a Bible on your desk. There's a guy in Boulder who's a teacher that actually got, I think, I know he got in trouble. I don't know if he lost his job or not over having a Bible on his desk. That's right. What what has happened, and and let's just fast forward, because the pilgrims, when they came to America, one of the first things they did was they set up separation of church and state. They did not allow the same person to head the church that headed the state. So you had two different... Now, you had Christians involved in both, and God's Word was involved in both. It should be. But you did not have the two institutions one, two separate institutions. Jefferson, when he quoted the separation church and state phrase, he's quoting from what the pilgrims and John Wise and everybody else had said. In separation church and state, he, he used that phrase because there was a... You've got to remember, they had just come through a state-established 
church in Jefferson lives in Virginia. The Anglican Church is the Church of Virginia. If you're a Baptist and preached in Virginia, you ended up in jail because the Anglican Church says you don't have an Anglican licensed priest. Anglicans are. Now this is in the state. This is in the listen, after it, the birth it, of the nation. After the birth of the nation, you've got nine of the thirteen colonies who have state-established churches, and you had Christians killing other Christians if they weren't from the right denomination. And that's where Jefferson steps in and said, separation church and state. And so one of the minority denominations was Baptist. They were up in New England area, and they said, we're scared to death. The state's going to tell us what our religious practices are. And Jefferson said, no, in America we have a separation church and state. Now, what that meant was the state will not tell you what your religious practices are. The state will not tell you whether you can or can't pray at a graduation. The state will not tell you whether you can or can't have a nativity scene in a public park. The state will not tell you whether you can or cannot pay for abortion and health care hobby lobby. See, exactly what Jefferson said is what the government's doing the opposite of today. In the name of separation and church. And see, this is the problem because the First Amendment, we're told today that the First Amendment means separation church and state. And Jefferson, the Supreme Court since 1962, or actually 1947, has not quoted a First Amendment case without quoting Thomas Jefferson. Now, Jefferson did not write the First Amendment. He was not even in the country when the First Amendment was written. But they consider Jefferson to be the authority. On the first. So, let me just quote the First Amendment concerning religion. It says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The only limitation in the First Amendment is Congress can't make a law making us all one religion, all Anglicans, Baptists, and Congress can't stop you from practicing your faith. The federal government cannot make us all one denomination. The federal government can't stop your faith. That's separation church and state. It doesn't say kids can't say God or teacher can't have a Bible mm-hmm. in his desk or anything. It says con- the federal government's the only thing limited. So how did we de- how did we degenerate to a place to where if you're a Muslim, you can go in and hold you know your Muslim <laughs> functions in a public school because if you were to say anything, that would be discrimination. But if you're a Christian, you can't do that because that is violating separation of church. So how did this happen? Let, let me first off say we've gone so far in the opposite direction that I, I now have a file on nothing but Christians who are arrested for free speech. Sure. So we have a pastor in Phoenix who spent three months in jail for having a Bible study in his home, in his home. The government said you can't do that. Violated the zoning or something. Violated separation church and state zoning. We have a 67-year-old man in Georgia who sat on a park bench, gave out a tract, spent two days in jail for giving out a gospel tract because he didn't have a parade permit to sit on a tract. We have... Uh, we have two pastors in California arrested for standing on the sidewalk reading the Bible on the sidewalk. Can't do that. Separation church and state. Well, and I can go through all these things. We have a, a, just last week I read on the internet of a girl who her term paper was rejected because they mentioned said, God. Who's your hero? And she said God. And they said separation her. church and state. Yeah. See, they they don't consider free speech to be free speech if it's Christian. Uh-huh. Now, you raise something else. And by the way, let me send you to a website called religioushostility.org. It, over the last three or four years, lists 1,200 incidents of Christians being nailed simply for sharing their faith in public in America. We're talking arrests and all sorts of stuff. Now, you raise the issue of how come, for example, in, in Michigan, why is it that in Michigan you cannot have a Bible study in your dorm room, but you, the state pays to have washing foot washing basins for Muslims, 25,000 a whack. You can't have a Bible study in dorm room on the University of Michigan campus, but we will use state funds to pay. And why is it that in California, the Ninth Circuit Court said you cannot say under God in the Pledge of Allegiance, but we will require you to, uh, to be part of a six-week 
public school course on Islam where you're required to pray to Allah, to write a prayer to Allah. You're required to read the Quran. We can't say God, but we, we can do this. What's happened? It goes back to the Supreme Court. Not only do they ignore history, not only do they ignore the history of separation of church and state, and I mentioned earlier, I was involved in seven cases of the U.S. Supreme Court. One we were involved with was a case where the U.S. Supreme Court said, and I love the way, I think it was Justice Scalia described it in the dissent because he objected because they were taking religion out again. He said, what the court has done is created classes of religions. What they've said is that if you belong to that group of Christians, which is about 80%, you don't get legal protection. But if you're down here with Muslims who are only 1%, we'll give you all sorts of legal So rather than giving everyone equal legal protection, they say, oh, you Christians, we've got to squash you down. You Muslims, we've got to lift you up. And so instead of it being voluntary, we now have the government saying, you won't say that, but you can say this. You can't do that. And, and so Hobby Lobby, who said, we're not going to have our employee, we're not going to pay for abortions. Mm -hmm. The government says, yes, you will. Now, wait a minute, separation, church, and state, the government doesn't tell us what our doctrines are and what we believe and how to practice them. And so uh, one of the signers of the Constitution, William Livingston, said that if the government ever gets to where that it violates the rights of conscience of others, it violates separation, church, and state. See, the Founding Fathers knew that separation is to limit the government, not to limit Christians. Yeah. You were talking about the Geneva Bible mm -hmm. and how that that just was, the Puritans were using this as a foundation, and it's really what our nation was founded upon it is. these principles. It is what our nation was founded on was the Geneva Bible specifically. This is the version that predates the King James. And that's a 15... This is a 1590 uh, version here. This is one of the Pilgrim families. Um, that's amazing. This is, they Holding brought a this piece over. Of history right there. Right there. That's 1590. This is the Bible. And, and so since their pastor said, look, when you get to America, do it the Bible way. Don't do it the way we've been doing it in Europe. And one of the things they, they wanted different was a form of government. The Bible talks about seven different forms of government in there. And people back then, if you'd lived anywhere in the world 400 years ago, you had a king for your ruler. You had the king of Scotland, the king of Ireland, the king of England. You had eventually Great Britain had a king. But you had the king of Portugal, the king of Spain, the king of the Helvetican states. You had the king of Italy. Everybody had a king. And why not? Because God had kings too. You got King Saul, King David, King Saul. But these guys said, wait a minute. God sent the prophet Samuel to tell the people, you don't want a king. This is a that bad wasn't thing. God's first That's right. Choice. That was not God's first choice. And Samuel was blunt. He said, if you get a king, look, look what's going to happen to your property taxes. Mm -hmm. Look what will happen to your military. And Samuel went there and told them all the specific, and they still said, we want a king. And what Samuel said all came to pass, property, etc. So what the pilgrim said is, okay, if God didn't want them having a king, if, what was his first choice? And they went back to Exodus 18.21. And the scripture says, choose out from among you leaders of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. Now, that was the qualification for office. And it was elections, local, county, state, and federal elections. So now they didn't have federal back then. That's what we would call it now. They had, you know, they had parishes and other things. But nonetheless, leaders, tens, fifties, hundreds, thousands. So what they did was when they get to America, they, first thing, Mayflower Compact, and they just kind of announced, uh, we're not doing the king thing anymore. We're having elections here. And so when they got off the ship, first thing, they start having annual elections for their leaders. And by the way, they chose both church leaders and state leaders. 
they voted on their church leaders as well as on their, the two different institutions. Now, they, that would have been totally different back in those days. You bet it was. the freedom to elect a church leader. Church electing, rather than having the king be your church leader uh -huh. and tell you what your doctrines are. You, and, and see, that, that goes back into Acts 6 and 7 where the, the apostles said, hey, choose out your deacons. You guys know them. Choose men full of the Holy Ghost and, and choose men to have a good reputation. And so it was the church people who chose their own deacons and their own leaders. And so that was really the, the model is God wants you choosing your leaders. Now, God may call you to be a leader, but if I'm going to have a congregation, I want to choose my, my leaders. And so that's what they did. They chose church leaders. They chose state leaders. Two separate institutions, but they started, and they didn't do it every two years. They did it every single year. That came out of the Bible. That, that's something the pilgrims did. Now, you can imagine that the, the king had, had let the pilgrims come over, and he had a charter for them. Uh, the pilgrims ignored that charter because the king didn't own the land. The Indians did. They went, made great friends with the Indians and, and bought the land, great relationships with the Indians. But the king is hearing all this stuff from the pilgrims and Puritans that says, Monarchy is not the way to go. You want elected leader. He didn't like that. That led to the king coming out with his own official authorized version of the Bible, which we call the King James Version, which I have right here. Mm -hmm. The difference was 95% of all English Bibles come from the Tyndall translation. So the Geneva Bible, the King James Bible, the language is pretty close. The difference was, whereas the Geneva Bible had commentaries, King James would not allow you to have commentaries on the Bible. Hey, you guys are used to having a king. We've had it 1,400 years. Let's just do it. So he shut off all the dissenting voices. So the King James Bible, still a good Bible, but it shut off the dissenting voices. It was trying to stop those commentaries of the Reformers. So what these guys do is, is they're into these commentaries, and they're into looking at the stuff, and they get here, and they, bless their hearts, I mean, these guys have been in Holland. They've been in England. They've never been to the United States before. They don't even know what it's like. And they land in Massachusetts in December and there's no place to live so you got to get off in December in the middle of all the winter storms and build places and by the way you don't have enough food to go through the winter and you can't plan anything because it's winter and so it is brutally rough on these guys and so they they were not prepared for what they they found here but they came as a congregation actually their pastor, John Robinson, was sending two ships of the congregation. The congregation is leaving the corruption of England. They're, they're going to start something new. And John Robinson, the pastor, is coming on the second ship. Well, the first ship goes out to Speedwell, and some of the sailors didn't want to go to the New World, so they drilled holes in the ship, and it started leak, leaking and sinking. They took it back. Then the pilgrims got on the Mayflower and came over. The second ship was supposed to come, but Pastor Robinson dies before the second ship can come. So he's trying to bring his whole congregation over. Now you have the Mayflower with half of the congregation. And so they do the Acts thing, says, look, brothers, we're going to take care of one another. We're all from the same congregation. We're all believers. Paul tells us in Galatians, you do good to all men, especially those in the household of faith. So we're, we're going to share everything in common. We're, we're going to do all the We're just going to split, even Stephen, everything we have. And the problem with that is, if you look at the painting of the pilgrims that hangs in the U.S. Capitol, there's some really old people there. There's some really young people there. There's some women there. And it ends up about one-fourth of the guys are able-bodied men. And they've got to build all the cabins. They've got to do all the fishing. They've got to do all the hunting. And everything they bring in split even Stephen with everybody. And, so as, and, and by the way, this is uh, the first ever printing in America of the records of the pilgrims. The pilgrim governor, William Bradford, who was there for all this time, 
This, his nephew printed all these records. This is the first account we have of the first Thanksgiving in America. It comes from this book right so here. So these were written records that maybe existed before this, but this is the first time they were compiled into a book. They, they started, the governor started writing records in 1620, 1621 when they got here, 1622. And so he took the governor's records, and this goes through year by year of the governor's records, the account of what they've so been calling. So when was that printed? This is printed in 1669. Wow. So this is 1669. And this is the first ever printing of the governor's records of, of the Plymouth Colony. And so what, what we've got in there is they record that we had a lot of laziness because suddenly these guys figure out, you know, I call in sick this morning, I still get the same share, yeah. whether I work or not. And then they found a couple of Bible verses. One was First, first uh, Timothy 5, 8. The Bible says, if you don't provide for your own household, you're worse than an infidel. You've denied the faith. They said, whoa, we're providing for everybody else's household. But that also gave birth to something later on where it says, you know what? If I'm to provide for my own household, I'm not a great hunter, but I am a great blacksmith. I can make hinges and I can make fireplace grates and I can make anything, horseshoes. Uh, but you're a great hunter. If you'll trade me a deer, I'll give you three sets of hinges. Another guy says, you know, I'm not a good blacksmith and I'm not a good hunter. But I am a great baker, and I can make bread like nobody's. Been. I'll trade you two loaves of bread for one, one of your hinges. And so they get into this barter trading system where that now you have the body acting like the body. Everybody's got different skill sets. This guy's a cooper, which means he makes barrels and, and buckets. And so they start using their skill. I'm a cobbler. I can make shoes. I'll trade you a pair of shoes for a rifle. And, you know, they do all this stuff. So they're taking care of their own family. And if they can produce, if I, if I can produce more loaves of bread, I can make more money and my family will have more. And so they have an incentive to work hard. And the second thing they found was Second Thessalonians 3.10, that mm -hmm. if you don't work, you don't eat. And so they had a community meeting and said, here's the deal. We will take care of the widows and the orphans. But if you're able-bodied and don't work, you don't eat. It's that simple. And so they had taken private property. They brought, bought from the Indians. They divided it up so everybody had their own property, way to produce. And if you didn't produce, it's your fault. Suddenly, their productivity went through the roof, and their governor, William Bradford, said, we had done it the other way as though we were smarter than God. And that was the case. God tells I you how to do this. I have heard that described as the very first thing was socialism. It was. And then they went into capitalism. That's right. And socialism failed. They nearly starved to death at the beginning, and it's when everybody began to have their own incentive that they started. Well, let's process. go south from the Pilgrims a little bit down to the Virginia colony, because Governor John Smith is in the Virginia colony. They came over here expecting the British government to take care of them, expecting John Smith, their governor, to take care of them. You have a much larger, instead of 102 people up here, you've got 13, 1,400 people down in Virginia Colony. They went into what was called the starving time. They were too lazy to work. It was too hard to work. You had to go out in the, in the wilderness, all the mosquitoes and all the swamp, and they didn't want to do that. And so what happens was they started starving. And in Virginia, they became cannibals. As people would die, they would eat the dead bodies of the people who died. Mm. As the horses would die from starvation, because they wouldn't go cut hay for the horses. They would eat the horses. And so John Smith quoted to them, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, that if you don't work, you don't eat. They still wouldn't get up. He went in with a whip among them and started whipping them until they got up. And that's what saved the Virginia colony was Second Thessalonians 3.10 and a whip, quite frankly. Wow. But the pilgrims did it voluntarily. And so it was socialism. They now called was it, Jamestown a religious colony? It, it was. It, Jamestown had some Jamestown said it was founded to propagate the gospel, and a number of ministers went there. But it was a commercial colony. It was not a religious liberty. The people who came there weren't being persecuted for their faith. The pilgrims were being persecuted for their faith. So you had an economic colony. You didn't colony. have quite as much influence as right. the Word. Did the, you didn't have. The people there had not been inculcated in the Word. 
They were largely Anglican out of the state church. They weren't the Puritans going in the Word of God. They, they weren't reading all the commentary. We know the pilgrims have spent several hours a day in the Bible. This was a brand new book to them. It's been shut up for, for centuries. Uh, language nobody could read. They're into it. They study, they study hours a day. And so they find stuff. They apply it. The Virginia colony, they had ministers who preached to them, but they didn't have the same personal study habits. So that's why in Virginia you had trouble with the Indians because they didn't purchase the land from the Indians. The pilgrims did because of what the Bible taught. So you have different models there, quite frankly. Virginia is still a good colony. They came to propagate the gospel. That's fine. They had a Christian motive. They just didn't have biblical application. So, David, uh, some of the application of history to us today, what can we learn through the things that you've just been talking about. What's the application of that to us today? It is God who established civil government. And for Christians to say, I'm not going to get involved with that. That's secular. You're denying the authority of God's Word. It's God who established the right basis for economics done the right way. And to say, oh, economics, that's secular stuff. I'm not going to... You, you can't do that. This is all God's stuff. We can learn the Bible is what shaped the good things in American culture. Ignoring the Bible is what shaped the bad things in yeah. American culture. And... Ben Franklin, not a religious founding father, he said a free market is the means under God of establishing. He knew the free market came out of the Bible. And yet in our society today, we're doing everything we can to get away from the free we market are. and to make government health care. And we're just, we're destroying the very principles that this nation We're not, about. we're letting the government tell us what we can and can't do with our faith, where we can and can't practice our faith, when we can and can't say God, what we can and can't say out of the pulpit, what we can and can't do with our conscience on homosexual marriage or abortions, chaplains are having trouble, all, you know, all these things. We're letting the government tell us about our faith. We're letting the government tell us what we can and can't buy with our own money. We no longer have the freedom of choice, whether it be in health care or in so many other areas. And it's, it's bad stuff all the way around. But it's because we don't know that the Bible says, and by the way, I mean, Congress has been going through this thing for two and a half years on what they're going to do with the fiscal cliff. And we keep coming up to continuing resolutions and, you know, we make deals to keep... Christians have got to get back to the Bible deals with the economics. For example... Oh, no man, anything. Oh, no man. Debt, debt is clear. <laughs> the Bible says the, the more debt you have, the less freedom you have. That's right. Founding Fathers quoted that creed. That's right. And you're to owe no man anything. Bible also... One of the things we did in trying to solve the fiscal cliff was we, for the first time in American history, made permanent the estate tax. So what? The Bible says the estate tax is a moral tax. I can give you three Bible verses against the estate tax, and we just accepted it as the American people. You know what? We also went from three levels of progressive income taxes to five levels. The Bible condemns progressive income taxes, but we just made that a permanent part of our system. Well, now, David, I, I agree with you that all of this is wrong, and I know your main function is to teach people on these things, mm -hmm. but, but what can we do about it? You say we allow it, but yeah. I, I'm doing everything I can. I speak against yep. it. First thing you do is you get yourself taught. You, you start reading stuff. You, start, you go to our website. You go to lots of other websites out there that have this stuff. You go to, on our website, we link to all these other websites. You can read the original documents for yourself. Once you know that, your next responsibility is Song of Solomon 8.13. The scripture says, your friends listen to your voice. So speak. Go tell other people about this. You may not can tell the whole nation. You may not can get on a network with 20 million viewers. Doesn't matter. If everybody will tell three or four or five other people in their community, they can turn it. Then the next thing you do is stop trying to solve problems at the national level. 
You attack your problems at the local level. If I take you back to the American Revolution for a minute, they had what were called committees of correspondence. And so when the British came in and started firing bullets at Lexington and Concord and, and the Boston Massacre and, and Bunker Hill, not a single guy in Massachusetts said, get a hold of George Washington quick, see what he wants us to do. They all stepped up and said, hey, we got danger right here. Let's defend our own town. And so in Lexington, it was the Reverend Jonas Clark who led his church out to defend the town from the British. It was 70 guys from his church taking on 700 British, but it was his church doing it. Mm -hmm. And in Concord, you had the Reverend William Emerson who took his guys out to defend Concord. It was people defending their local areas. So stop thinking on the national level. Start thinking on your local level. Then read what we have in Judges 9 about the parable of the brambles and find out that it's supposed to be religious people that recruit people for office. So you start saying, we need two more school board people that fear God. So I'm going to go recruit school. We need two on the city. We need city council. We need five on the city council and the mayor. We need a public utility district guy over here. We need a guy sitting on the junior college board. Start looking to get godly people in office. That's what the pilgrims did. It's, there's a separation church and state. The church is not trying to run government. But you want godly people in who understand biblical principles of economics, biblical principles of government, biblical principles of freedom, biblical principles of education. All these things came out of the Bible. And unless you get people who think like that in those areas, and that's what we can do. And by the way, that may mean you ought to run for office. It may mean that you need to step up and say, you know what, I can be a pastor and be on the school board. That's not a problem. I can be a pastor and I can be on the public utilities. Or maybe I'm, I'm just a Christian. That's fine. But I can be mayor. Run for office. Don't you know, give it to the other guys. You know, we've been doing that in our school. We've been uh, exposing our students to this. And we've had a number of our people run for public office because I told them Makes the difference. problems we had building our buildings up in Woodland Park and stuff. It's just amazing. Yeah. The obstacles and this foolish, stupid thing that's that right. come. And so I said, we're just going to take this thing over. In, in our town, I'm a country, I'm a cowboy. Our little town of just about 600 people, our city council, five members and a mayor, had run that place into debt by about $100,000, a little bitty town. And we said, we can do better than this. So the four churches got together in town and said, let's, let's, let's do better than this. And the churches said, great, let's all recruit. Well, the other three churches didn't recruit candidates. We recruited all five out of our church, plus the mayor, but everybody supported them. We took over the whole city council in one election, and within six months, we're $50,000 in the black, That's not the red, cool. and all the lawsuits That's are dismissed. Awesome. You know, it's awesome. just stand up and do something. You can, and if every single community will take care of their community, the whole nation is going to be well. That's how they rebuilt the walls around you. Everybody said, the walls, you can't rebuild this. You can't lift 70-ton rocks 100 feet in the air. No, what? You just take care of your part of the wall. If you'll rebuild your part, the whole wall will go up. That's all we've got to do. Man, that's awesome. I pray that this is encouraging you today, not only to give you the information about what the truth is and to get away from this revisionist history and the intimidation that a lot of Christians feel, but we need to go beyond just being inspired and actually do something. And what David's talking about is something that we're in the process of doing with our Caris Bible Colleges. We're encouraging people that you need to get into the political arena and you need to start making a difference and praise God, I believe that the information you're sharing, David, could give some people the information, the impetus to go ahead and do something.